We are um, continuing in a sermon series on Deuteronomy 6, uh, which has one after this, one perhaps two sermons left in it. Um, and we've been talking about, um, we started talking about at the, at the start of Deuteronomy 6, we saw this thing called the, the Shema, Israel's Confession of Faith, found in chapter 6, verse 4. Now, usually we have the verses kind of on the screen rolling as I go. I'm going to ask that you open up your Bible or turn on your Bible, as the case may be this morning, and follow along with me. Because when I looked over the notes, I was kind of darting this way and that in, in different places in the text, and I said, I'm, we're just going to go old school. So if you'll, just, if you'll just grab the hard copy that you have there, I'm preaching from the ESV. What you've got in the pews there is the New King James, and so you might have brought an ESV with you. You might have one on your phone, but they're, they're very, very similar in their content. So uh, beginning in verse 4 then, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, the Lord our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, And on your gates. And our text ends here, but I'm going to take us just a few uh, more verses in for the purpose of the sermon. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat, and are full. Take care. Then take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. These words shall be on your heart. Kind of half command, half promise. You shall then teach them diligently to your children. The way I want you to look at this text We started with knowing God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the first sermon. Then we moved to uh, loving God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and so on. This morning's sermon is entitled Seeing God because that is what the Lord God gives His people in this text, a way, if you like, to see Him. He says, these words will be on your heart, and what are you supposed to do with them? Now, You could separate verse 6 from verse 5, but I don't want you to do that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And once that's the reality for you, what's then going to happen in your heart? These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then what's going to happen? What does it look like to have God's words on your heart? It looks like teaching them to your kids, talking about them when you sit in your house. Now, I want you to notice something. Uh, Teach them to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house. Walk by the way. Probably a reference to uh, going, what we would call going to work. Okay, walk by the way. So when you're when you're moving from house to work or from house to anywhere else, and when you lie down and when you rise. I don't know if you notice very, very, very ordinary activities. What is Moses doing here? Moses, when he's telling this to the people, more than likely. 
dear saints, he's just thinking of the most boring, ordinary stuff he can grab. Okay? What? I mean, boring, ordinary, everyday life. Sitting down, talking to your kids, walking by the way, getting up, laying down, ordinary stuff. Okay? Uh, and, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. These are, ah, these are reminders. I don't know if you remember, I mean, this is way back, uh, before we had phones that would buzz at us to remind us of things that we forget. But, but children, grown-ups used to tie strings to their finger, at least so the legend goes, uh, to help them remember something, okay? So I, I think I just offended somebody. But, uh, so I, I never did that, and I wondered why whenever I opened up a reminder program on my computer, it had a finger with a little knot around it. And that, that was why, because it was a way of, you would look at your hand and it would remind you of whatever it was you're supposed to do. And some of you, uh, will even some of you write on your, actually write on your hands so that you remember things. Um, what, what this practice was, and you start to see as we get into the New Testament that it's kind of go, undergone some uh, misuse in the sense of it's just used as, a, oh, just religious paraphernalia. But bind them as a sign on your hand and uh, as, as frontlets between your eyes, a reference to the, the kind of, uh, we, would, we might call it a headband that the, the high priest would wear, a, a frontlet that had actually a little bit of scripture on the front of it, again, right between his eyes. But it doesn't say, it, it says as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, the words of God should be in front of your face, okay? Between your eyes, not to put too fine a point on it. And why bind them as a sign on your hand? Well, I don't know if you've thought about it, but like you, you look at your hands a lot during the day because you use them to pick things up, to, to carry things, to, I don't know, to play video games, to get, a, get your remote control, whatever it is that you do. It. Like you're using your hands a lot and you are frequently looking at them. Some people can't talk except that they use their hands, right? And put them in their field of vision all the time. The point is that the Word of God is supposed to be in front of your face. And you're using any excuse. Getting up, lying down, walking around, talking to your children, going to work. And then when you get home, what's verse 9? You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So now they're in front of your face when you're coming and going. And maybe, maybe some of you know the way this tradition is sometimes preserved is with a, a mezuzah scroll. It's like a little... Uh, sometimes a, a metal silver tube that, uh, that Jews to this day will get something about the size of a post-it note and put Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 here in Hebrew on the post-it note, roll it up, put it in the tube, and nail the tube to the side of the door. I don't know if that's quite what Moses is going for here. It seems to me that that's actually obscuring the words themselves when the point is to see the words themselves. But that's, I mean, it just gives you an idea of how in one sense, this was practiced. These words I've given you will be on your heart, and the result of that, O Israel, will be that you will start furnishing an environment where all the stuff around you reminds you of God's words, and it's God's words saturate your conversation as well. If you want to think of it this way, you are building a little, 
little God town inside your house. And it's full of all God's commandments and, and promises and things He said so that when you look around your home and talk with people in your home, it is, as it were, the promises of God will echo off the walls. And by the way, the promises are written there too. And this is really just an extension of a principle that is true all of life, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, regardless of whether or not you even believe in God. And that is, we always build and, and, if I can put it this way, furnish our spaces according to what we believe. If you want to know what someone believes, look at what they create. Look at what they make. It will be an indicator to you of what is most important to them. Look at what they spend their energy making, designing, writing, producing. If you wondered why so much modern art is really weird and bizarre and meaningless, it's because we live in a culture that preaches meaninglessness. If you go into someone's home, you start to notice what is most valuable to them, what is most lovely to them, what is most worthy of praise. Because they surround themselves with it. You almost can't help it. If you go into someone's office, if you you go into my office, you will find things that I love. Okay, You will see a picture of my wife. It's there for a reason. You'll see a reminder from Martin Luther. Uh, I did nothing, the Word did everything. It was Luther's response when asked about the Reformation. Right? Good reminder for a pastor. Uh, And so we surround ourselves with things we want to know, want to uh, love, and and love more and learn more about. You always build according to what you believe. This is true of every culture, every city, every society, every person. If you go into a man cave, right? if somebody has a man cave, it's what? It's filled with things that thrill their heart and excite them, whether that's, you know, I don't know, a, a, a... bit of their favorite sports team or, or something, a poster from their favorite movie, things like that. The things that excite our hearts is how we um, arrange the space around us. You always build after what you believe. What thrills your heart and claims your affection is what you want to surround yourself with. Okay, Insert joke here about uh, uh, teenage girls and the boy band posters. Right, What thrills your heart is how you design your space. Our words, then, are not the only thing that preach or proclaim what we believe. What we do with our space, our living space, our working space, our playing space, our our worshiping space, is a proclamation of what we believe to be most important. And so God tells His people, take your household and all the people in it, okay, and surround yourself with My words. With my promises. Why? Well, because they're already on your hearts. Look back at the text. These words that I command you today, verse 6, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently, and so on. They're on your heart, so this is what you're going to do with the thing that claims your heart's affection. Now, there were two challenges. I think I'm only going to have time to talk about one of them today. But two challenges before Israel that we see brought forth in this passage. And it's still, it's still a real challenge for you and I in terms of following after God. It was a challenge for Israel. It's a challenge for us. Two, excuse me, two challenges. One, don't know if you noticed, but God, our God, is invisible. Okay? Our God is invisible, which can make worship challenging because we cannot see the one whom we worship. That's part of the temptation of idolatry. Okay? 
something I can see and control and manipulate and so on. Number two, worship, the act of worship, can be imitated. It can be aped. It can be uh, uh, played at. You can pretend to worship. You can pretend to look really pious and spiritual and all those sorts of things, and it cannot be in your heart. Two challenges. So then that brings forward two questions. Number one, how can I see God? That's the title of the sermon. Number two, how can I worship Him authentically? And this text is getting at both of those things. Can you see God? Well, no, but you can see His words. That's what's at work here. Put my words around you so you can see them in your coming and going and you're getting up and laying down and then they'll be all over your conversation. Because if our thinking's about God and our reading is about God and then our talking is about God and our singing is about God, then we're, then we're going to follow after God. However, if all that we read and speak and sing and think on God is contained within a two-hour period on Sunday morning, it is likely that we do not believe in God. We might believe in the appropriateness of a regular weekly religious activity, but we do not believe in God. Let me, let me prove it to you. Let me give you this example. We believe as a culture in the goodness of a process of education, okay? Because that's the world in our culture that we establish and that we sustain. We believe students should make good grades in order to live a good life. I'm not debating that. I'm simply asserting it. I I think you're crazy if you disagree. How do I know? Because that's how we actually live. Parents spend themselves and their energy and their patience and their money and their time All of it. Why? So their children can learn and their children's minds can be properly cultivated. Okay? Not a bad thing. This passage in Deuteronomy 6 might kind of sound odd to you. Why do you put... Okay, take take his word, put it on your door, your doorposts and... And gates and on your on your hand, okay, and as as a, a thing between your eyes, that sounds weird. What if I replaced it with education? Watch this. And the Lord said unto them, All the subjects of the modern educational system shall be on your heart. And you shall make sure that your children learn them diligently. And you shall talk of them when you are at home doing homework. And when you sit in your house at the dinner table, you shall ask how school is going. And when you're coming and going from work, you shall ask about assignments and athletic practices. And before they lie down, you shall ask them again about homework or any tests. And when they rise up, you shall ask them about projects and their ongoing educational growth. Keep it as a frontlet between your eyes. And when they make the honor roll, you shall bind it as a sign on your bumper. (laughs) And when they succeed and graduate... You shall put balloons and banners in your front yard and you shall write their success on the doorposts of your house and the gates of your Facebook feed. Now that doesn't sound weird at all. That sounds very familiar. We already do that and that's okay. I'm not dogging that. It's okay to do that because education really is that important. But if I were, I mean, if I were to question that, All of you would get concerned. If I were to get up in here and say, you know, dear saints, I've been thinking and and really I'm becoming more and more convinced that all this education really doesn't matter. 
You are wasting 10, 11, 12 years of your kids' lives consumed with all this reading and writing nonsense, math and grammar and science and so on. It's a waste. You would flip to the back of your bulletin and email the clerk of the Gulf South Presbytery today and say, red alert, Rhodes has lost it, Gulf South Presbytery, come and get your boy. And you should. Because we can't fathom living in a culture where we don't highly prize the education of our children. That's our normal. It's our ordinary. It's everywhere. And not just for children. I mean, you look around and you're constantly seeing advertisements for schools and colleges on billboards. I mean, community colleges, certificate programs, apply now. Constant advertisements for programs. And the, it's the air you breathe. For your good and the good of your neighbors, be ye educated. And again, I'm not saying that's, that's bad. I'm saying the priorities of a society can be seen in these ways, and those priorities do have consequences. I mean, <laughs> sometimes negative consequences, right? I don't know if you know this, but I mean, if you have um, children younger or older, you, you know that, that a lot of our young people stress about school. They cry about it. They lose sleep over it. They'll stop eating because of it. They'll overeat because of it. They'll be ground up sometimes and feel crushed by it. Why? Well, for better or worse, they are being changed by it. And they'll endure it all because the air they breathe and the culture around them says it's worth it, right? Stick with it. Finish the education. It is worth it. Why do we do that? Because you always build according to what you believe. And we have built a culture that highly prioritizes formal education because we believe in that. Now stop for a moment and consider this. If you are enrolled in some sort of educational program right now, whether you're a kid or an adult, I don't care, whether you're younger or older, what are you doing with your life? I'm willing to bet you are practicing that program probably every day. You do the assignments. You listen to the instructions. You carry out the tasks. You make the grades every day. That's your normal, and you probably believe it matters. If you work outside the home, you practice that work probably every day. Every day you figure out the requirements of your job. You do them. You double-check them. You make sure your superiors are pleased. That's normal, and you believe it matters. If you work inside the home, you practice that work every day. You care for the children or clean the spaces or fold the clothes or wipe the counters or dust the furniture because you believe that what you're doing is worthwhile and good. That's your normal and you believe it matters. And then we show up for church once a week, hour and a half, maybe two if you can bear the thought of lingering and having a real conversation with another human being. Check in, check out, get back to real life. That's the danger. Normal life. The practices and habits and routines, the actual normal that we actually believe in. These words I command you today will be on your heart. And you will talk about them with your kids and with your co-workers. When you're laying down, when you're sitting down, when you're getting up, you're going to wear them like clothes on your, on your hands, on your body. They'll be in front of your face and on your house and on your city gates. And they will, you, you will live inside this God-shaped environment that will preach to you every day so that the commands and promises of God Almighty are the actual normal that you actually live in. Church is weird. 
I don't know if y'all know, but like what we get together and do in the broader context of our culture is really weird. We get together, we read out loud, we sing out loud, we get really sober about a bit of bread and a sip of wine, and then we sing some more, and then a guy in a big goofy looking gown thing talks to us for longer than some of us would like. It's weird. Where else do you go and recite and sing and then listen and then eat and then sing some more? Not a whole lot of places, especially the singing bit, and especially men. I think in broadly women tend to be more comfortable with the singing bit, both inside of church and outside of it. And there are reasons for that. Sometimes it's because some of the songs we sing try to make men become effeminate lovers of an effeminate Jesus, and it's something that Eddie and I try real hard to avoid. But also because, I mean, just singing is not something you do a lot. right? Maybe in your car. Maybe, and here. But that's probably about it for most of you. And if not, then like you probably tell people about that. Well, I sing a lot. That's my thing, right? I was struck. I... This, um, I guess it was last month that I finished, no, no, earlier this month, that I, I finally finished reading uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Always wanted to read Lord of the Rings, never have. But I finished the first one at least, Fellowship of the Ring. And what I noticed, what, what jumped out of me, among many things, they're always singing. Like you turn two pages and they're singing again. And you turn two more pages and they're singing and they're singing and they got a song for this. They got a song when they're happy and a song when they're sad and a song when they're bored and a song when they're traveling and a song when they're sitting, a song for their eating. Like they're just always singing. And we've, culturally we've lost singing as a, as a kind of holding that kind of place for us. Let me ask you this. What if our worship our, our prayers, praises, liturgy, scriptures, even our singing was on our lips every day. What if worship was more normal? And I don't mean call everything worship because that sounds super spiritual. I, I mean the actual actions of, of praise, prayer, singing, hearing scripture, talking about it, putting it in front of your face as front lits between your eyes. This is what God calls His people to in this text. To, to, as it were, build a God-shaped environment because He means for them to live in a world where worshiping Him is their normal. They're familiar. As much a part of life as food and drink and deadlines and mailboxes and Legos and trampolines and goldfish crackers and whatever it else is that's normal in your house. If we only worship God once a week, worship remains weird and foreign and what COVID has taught us, altogether unnecessary. Optional. A duty perhaps, but maybe not a necessity. It will remain weird to us and I'm sad to say it will remain weird to our children. But what if it's the practice of our households? What if then we might begin to see what God would do with a people for whom worship is their normal? And so I am encouraging families today, consider establishing a practice of family worship. Maybe just for a few minutes. Maybe just a couple of times a week is all you can manage. Maybe over breakfast or over dinner. 
that God would inhabit your conversation, that God talk would become more like normal talk, and even that singing would be a part of life, not just a part of church. That one will be hard. Okay? Now, as soon as I say that, as soon as I say that, there's all kinds of possible responses in this room, such as, like, <laughs> I don't have kids in the house, right? I either don't have children or, or they all moved out. Okay, fine. If there's more than one of you in the house, you can sing. Uh, some of you don't believe me. Well, there, or, or, or how about it's just me in my house right now? Okay, fine. You can still sing. You can really sing. You probably already sing in the shower, okay? Uh, and so, but, but singing, again, part of, or, and, and maybe part of the answer there is that, uh, is that we find excuses to be together more. I've, I've got this idea I've been working on right now to, to do a, a prayer group either in the morning or the evening just based around reading some prayers and scriptures and singing together. Just without, I mean, without a guitar, without piano, just, you know, just singing some stuff that we know. Um, we could call it something really innovative, like a prayer group. It would be cool. It would be cool. But I don't, know, I don't know when people are available. So like, come, if that sounds interesting to you, come and talk to me and say like, hey, Tuesday morning, like my workday starts at 8. I could do 6.30. Or, or if it's later in the evening, then tell me. Um, but there are lots of, lots of possibilities and options before you. I did want to mention on our, on our worship guide for January, on, on the back of it, you see this little recommended reading thing? These are in your pews uh, when you came in. At least they should have been. Um, two books that are in our book depository right now, both of them on family worship. If, you, if, you, if I say family worship and you're like, what is that? I ain't never heard of that before. These will help you. These will help you find a place to get started. Um, take a time. Okay. Quickly, I want to show you something else. If we keep reading, we discover something. Read this to you earlier. Verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of things you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you eat and are full, take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel was in the middle of a massive relocation project, right? from the wilderness to the promised land. God had given them the mission, or will give them the mission soon, to be His arm of justice in the land of Canaan, and they're going to the promised land. Now this might strike you as weird. The Lord, through Moses, He went straight from bind these things on your hand, right? Put them on the doorpost, put them on the city gates, to warnings about life in the promised land. And, and kind of, you're going to be surrounded by stuff I gave to you that you didn't build. But it's yours. God is telling them, you must build these kinds of households, right? Households surrounded by my words and commands and promises. Because if you don't, when you get to Canaan, you're going to find yourself sitting in the middle of somebody else's house that you didn't build. And you will either see a reflection of me because you've listened, or you'll see a reflection of you and all that you've done. Or so you think. Because our natural bent is always to build little towns, little, little homes that proclaim how great we are. We've been doing it since Tower of Babel, okay? We build houses in the city to show how cultured we are. Or houses in the country to show how independent and self-sufficient we are. Or tiny houses to show how efficient we are. Big houses to show how wealthy and successful we are. 
Or we build houses across the street from the church to show people how spiritual we are. I'm just as vulnerable to this as you. What you build always proclaims what you believe. What you love most and value most, what you long for most. Now, you can go in a legalistic direction with this. Like, there, there's no bit in the text about like, how many Bible verses should adorn your living room. Okay? In a sense, that's really not the point. The point is, is that the space in which you live becomes an excuse to preach what's most important to your heart. So the Lord gives this command to Israel, write my words on your hearts, on your houses, on your hands, on your doors. Why? Because you will build a dwelling that will reflect your worship. And if I am not God and King over all of your life, you will soon find yourself worshiping the thing you actually love the most, which is yourself. For Jesus... This is true of them, it's true of us. They would not have put it this way, but the reality is Jesus is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Okay, He's Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And so God says when you get to the promised land, in a sense, be defensive, have a care for what you build and where you live and how you conduct yourself because your deceitful heart is not going to coast uphill. You always defend what your heart loves most. And loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. He says might. He says strength because you always build what you believe. Not only that, you defend it too. And so God tells them, be on guard about how you live. To close, you, you probably know that despite these warnings from Moses, the people of Israel failed to love God with all their heart and soul and strength. We find out the, what happens and the consequences of that in, in Ezekiel. We have been talking about that. They fall prey to the temptations of idolatry. And about 2,000 years ago, God the Son wraps Himself in human flesh and He comes and He builds something. He comes to build a kingdom. And in doing so, He reveals to us the heart of God because you always build based on what you value most and what you love. And so what sort of kingdom does Jesus come to build? I'm so glad you asked. We're going to move, uh, before I conclude, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's just after James. Yeah? So put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Build, Jesus is building this kind of place, a place free from malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, a place where people are desiring His Word because it's on their hearts. What you build reveals what's most important to you. So it is with our Lord Jesus. He is building and revealing what is most important to Him, a kingdom that will not perish. If I can use this metaphor, you and I are called to build our house or our apartment or our tiny home or our mansion or our mobile home such that our house and all in it proclaims Jesus. His promise, His commands, such that all inside it, all who live inside it, find that worship and singing and speaking of God as ordinary as dust on the furniture 
And when that living water flows inside the home, it will leak out the doors and windows to your neighbors, to your brothers and sisters. Jesus is building a kingdom where the worship of Him is normal and where, this is the gospel, where forgiveness is normal. Forgiveness. The forgiveness of Jesus is what is most important, most fundamental to the gospel. It is what is most radical and offensive about our gospel. That Jesus forgives sins. and, And sinners too, by the way. Especially the ones that we despise. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you know why he said debtors? Because debtors actually owe you stuff. They've actually wronged you. They've actually shorted you. They actually owe you something. Jesus is building a kingdom where forgiveness is our normal, where holiness is our normal, where repentance is our normal, where maturity and self-control are normal, where we don't flee and hide from each other. Jesus is building a kingdom where fear of that kind is foreign, where rage is subdued, where hidden sins are exposed, where grace and mercy triumph. Now, He builds this in congregations, yes, but He starts with individuals and with families. See, And so, one of the best ways we can be building and seeing this kingdom built in this world is to be forgiving each other freely and constantly. Because you actually ask God to forgive you accordingly every Sunday. I hope more often than that. And so this is the kingdom and the work that we've been given. How is it that we see God? By putting His Word all around us and then our Lord in His mercy has given us this table and He said, if you want to see Me, receive Me. Come and see this. Come and take and eat and be satisfied. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You for Your words, which the more that we know them, the more that we are indeed enabled to love them. This good news that You have put Your Word on our hearts and so grant that it would would flow out of us and and onto the things that we make and create and desire for for our families, for the friends around us, that we would be a people who talk about the Gospel of our Lord Jesus who talk about it to others, who talk about the realities of God in Christ, who talk about our repentance and our forgiveness, and who even sing about it without fear. I pray, Lord, for those this morning who maybe are discouraged by anything I've said for whom this comes as law. I pray that you'd remind us that your forgiveness is plentiful, And that most often you grow us like trees at a pace that is sometimes imperceptible but still real and genuine. And so continue, Lord, to grow us in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Surround us with His words, both both metaphorically and literally, that we would be a people knowing, confessing, loving, and singing of the glories of Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen.